0: So today we're uh, continuing with our series that we've titled I Am. It's a series on the names of God. And I hope you found the series helpful to this point. I hope you'll continue to. Uh, There are many good and encouraging things that we learn as we consider uh, these compound names of God uh, that we find in the scriptures. Each one of them reveals something about God's character and of his care uh, for uh, his people, for, for us. And so today we're going to be looking at Exodus 17. If you want to go ahead and turn there and hold your place, we'll get there in just a minute. Uh, The events of this chapter that we're going to read, chapter 17, happened not very long after God's people had been delivered from 400 years of slavery uh, in Egypt. They had been freed uh, from Pharaoh's rule. In fact, uh, what we're going to read today probably is just a few months after they had been freed uh, from Egypt. And the people had seen in this period of time from when they had left Egypt until what we're going to read, they had seen God's power in many, many. Uh, ways. First of all, they had seen his power in getting Pharaoh to the place where he finally relented and said, okay, I'm going to let you guys uh, leave. And, and then, of course, if you're familiar with the story, you know as soon as they started to leave Egypt, Pharaoh changed his mind and sent his army after them. And so they had seen God miraculously part the Red Sea. Uh, so that they could cross and get away from Pharaoh's army. And if you know the story, you know, Pharaoh's army uh, followed them, thinking that God had also provided a nice path for them to continue to pursue uh, the Israelite people. And uh, God waited until the army got right in the middle of the Red Sea, and then the waters collapsed uh, on top of them. And so God had miraculously spared his people uh, from the pursuing army. They had experienced many things. They had experienced God turning bitter water sweet for their enjoyment. Uh, And they were being uh, directly led by God. I I mean, Moses was their human leader, but but God was very directly leading them. And God was even allowing them to see a visible representation uh, of his presence, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire uh, by night. As if all that wasn't amazing enough, they were being daily fed by God, miraculous food. Food that would just appear on the ground. Manna. Of course, nobody really knows for sure what manna was. Uh, Some places in Scripture it's referred to as corn from heaven, other places bread from heaven, Uh, but nobody really knows exactly what it was. But But it was miraculous food. They just walked out in the morning and there it was. They uh, took as much as they needed to be filled. and, And this was directly from the hand of God. So you have to keep in mind, all that God had and was doing in their lives when we read chapter 17 of Exodus, which we're going to do now. So you can follow along uh, as I read. Uh, If you need a Bible, they're on either side of the sound booth. You can help yourself to one. I think the word should also be on the screen uh, behind me. So again, follow along as I read. Here's what we find. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered, Moses, walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And go, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this on the side of the elders of Israel, and he called the place um, Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Those two words simply mean testing and quarreling. I'm going to verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner." He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So Exodus 17 shows us two significant problems that confronted God's people at Rephidim. The first problem was that there was no water "...for them to drink." No drinkable uh, water. And this caused the people to become rather contentious. They were angry with Moses. They quarreled with him. They, they demanded that he produce water. I mean, think about that. Demanding of a human being in a place with no water, produce water uh, for us. And they grumbled against Moses. They accused him of bringing them up out of Egypt to make them die of thirst." They were so angry and so nasty that Moses was afraid that they would stone him, and so he desperately cried out to God for help. The second problem that confronted the people of God at Rephidim was that they were attacked by the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were basically uh, their cousins. They were likely descendants of Esau. They were a nomadic, marauding people. And they are identified as among the worst peoples in the Bible compared to the Canaanites and the Moabites. They were so displeasing to God that he marked them for extinction. Stating that here in this 17th chapter of Exodus. Now that wouldn't actually come to pass for some time, but it would eventually come to pass under the rule of David uh, when he would so thoroughly defeat the Amalekites that they would be reduced to irrelevant. And then the Simeonites killed the remaining few who had escaped uh, David. But the point here is that they were fearsome, nasty, godless people. And the people of God were attacked by them here at Rephidim just a short time after being freed from slavery in Egypt. So we can agree these are two pretty significant problems. No water, and in this same place where there's no water, they are also attacked by the fearsome uh, Amalekites. And here's something that I think we need to be careful not to miss that verse 1 tells us about this. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim. They were at Rephidim, this place with no water, this place where they were going to be attacked by the Amalekites because God commanded it. God himself led them to this place of difficulty. As you think about God's care for his people, I want you to really grasp this. God himself led them to a place where there was no drinkable water. God, who is good all the time, all the time, God is good, led them to this place with no drinkable water, which you have to have to live, by the way. So they're led to a place with no drinkable water, to a place where they're going to be attacked by the Amalekites. And in these problems, the people of Israel angrily ask a question. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Now, Christians today very frequently remind each other that it is okay to wrestle with doubts about God. It's okay to have questions and cry out to God as the psalmist did when the circumstances of our lives make it appear that God has hidden his face from us. It's okay to honestly express our feelings to God. He can handle them. He will meet us in our doubt, in our confusion, and our frustration. God is patient and kind with us when we were in these kind of places. And I believe all of that is true. Those are good things for us to remind one another. Those are good things to know that even when we're frustrated, even when we say, God, I don't understand it and I don't like what's going on in my life, God can handle those things, but something much more than that is going on here in Exodus 17. This isn't just honest uh, wrestling with the circumstances of your life. What this is that they ask is a horribly unfaithful question. In, In fact, with all that God had done for them, and with all that God was actively doing for them, this question is outrageously unfaithful. Think, think again about everything that God had done in very recent times. They had been miraculously delivered from 400 years of slavery. They had watched the Red Sea part. I, I mean, think about that. And this wasn't like 50 years ago. This like just Pretty recently happened. They had tasted some water, it was bitter, and when Moses did what God instructed, they tasted it again and the water was good. Wrap your mind around this God was allowing them to see a visible manifestation of His presence. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. They only moved when the cloud or the fire moved. So they knew that God was leading them. No doubt as they asked this question, is the Lord among us or not, they could look and see the pillar of cloud. I mean, you can just imagine Moses like, you moron, can you not see the cloud? But, but this is what they're doing. They, they can see the cloud and they're asking, is God among us? And that very morning, they had picked manna off of the ground and eaten until they were full. They had fed on supernatural food, food that just appeared in the morning from the hand of God. And in the midst of all of this activity of God, all of this, you know, just basically God screaming, here I am taking care of you. In the midst of all of this, they say, they ask, is the Lord among us or not? It's really more of an accusation than a question. Here's what it's it's like. And some of you mothers have probably experienced this. It is like a bratty little kid coming into the kitchen, seeing his mother actively preparing dinner and saying, why won't you feed me? Don't you care about me? This is what it's like. It was an outrageously unfaithful question. Have you ever acted toward God like these people did? Have you ever looked straight at the evidence of God's love and care and deep down in a secret place in your heart held an accusation against God? God, you don't care about me. Are you doing that now? Have you developed a sense of entitlement that every time the plan of God takes you to a place where Figuratively, there is no drinkable water, or lead you to a place where you are attacked by some enemy, lead you to a place of difficulty, that your first reaction is to become angry with God, to make an accusation against Him, or to try to manipulate Him into giving you what you want. I, I'm sorry to say that I have reacted toward God in this way at times in my life. I think many of us have. Some of us are probably reacting this way to God right now about something in our lives. Some some pressure in our lives has brought out the ugly in us, brought out the ungrateful in us, and caused us to ask unfaithful questions about God. Their unfaithful question caused God to teach them a lesson. And central to the lesson that God was going to teach them was the staff that Moses carried. The staff of God, as Moses called it in verse 9. The staff is very interesting. You see the staff involved in many of the demonstration of God's power throughout the deliverance of the people from Egypt. And and we know this because God refers to it, when he he tells Moses to take it in front of the people, he refers to it as the staff with which you struck the Nile. And, And so we know it's one and the same staff. And in some instances, if you read through the book of Exodus, in some instances, this staff was used by Aaron as Moses would tell him what to do, as God would tell Moses what to do. So, so God would give Moses an instruction, and then Moses would say, hey, Aaron, take that staff and well, whatever the case would be. At other times, Moses and Aaron seemed to have used the staff together, Uh, Such as uh, this uh, time that God is referring to here when they both struck the Nile. And then the Nile was turned to blood. One of the, the plagues that God used to finally get Pharaoh to let the people go. And then at other times, such as here in chapter 17, Moses alone uses the staff. The point is that this is the staff of God, the staff of the Lord. And so I want you to just quickly think about all the ways this staff had been involved in the miraculous things that God had done for his people. It had been used in turning the Nile to blood. It had been used in bringing about the plague of frogs. It had been used in bringing about the plague of gnats. It had been used in bringing about the plague of hail. It had been used in bringing about the plague of locust. And then in some places if the staff isn't directly mentioned we're told that Moses stretched out his hand and it likely is that the staff was in his hand even when it's not directly uh, mentioned. And so verse 5 says The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb, strike uh, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So God is going to teach the people a lesson. And central to the lesson that he's going to teach is this staff, the staff of the Lord. And so with this staff that God has uh, performed so many miracles uh, with, with this staff, by God's direction, Moses strikes the rock and water... Comes out of the rock. Enough water to satisfy the thirst of every one of the people. And there were a bunch of people. What what, what do they say? It's like two million people, I think. Is is that right? The numbers are all over the place. We'll go with two million because that's what I. What's that? There was lots. Very technical word. There were lots of people. Just nod when I ask you a question. Just say say yes and and affirm me and what I'm asking. (laughs) There were lots of people. And there was enough water to (laughs) to satisfy all of them. Now, with all the provision that God had made for his people since they had been freed from Egypt, I have zero doubt... That God was going to provide water for them without them complaining. I have zero doubt about that. But they were impatient, they were entitled, They, they weren't satisfied with God providing. They wanted God to provide at the exact moment they demanded. Recognize that? We're often like this. And we see, I believe, in God's response to them, God's gracious character, God's heart for his people. I mean, put yourself in the place of God. I mean, if any of us were in God's place, this story would look a lot different than it actually does. I I mean, imagine having people that you've done all of these things that we've talked about here this morning now complain to you probably like right before you're about to give them water anyway. Well, how would we respond? I can imagine myself responding something like this. Oh, oh, I'm not getting the water to you fast enough? Well, I was going to give you some. But now I think we'll just see if you can go another day or two without any. And then I'll give you some. Or how about this one? Because I am so gracious, in spite of your complaining, I am still going to give you water. But because of your complaining, guess what? Water now tastes like rotten eggs. (laughs) Enjoy. But not God. He simply provides them with water. And he does so by using uh, Moses and the staff that had been involved in so many of God's miraculous actions on behalf of his people up to this point. And so God is communicating something to the people here. He is teaching them a lesson. And the lesson becomes very clear. As we move from this story of the water coming out of the rock and move to the story, the rest of the chapter uh, about the Israelites being attacked by the Amalekites. So the Amalekites, these nomadic marauders, these people who are so evil that a gracious God has marked them for extinction, they attack Israel. Moses selects Joshua, who would uh, later become the leader of the nation of Israel, to choose some men to go and fight the Amalekites. And Moses explains to Joshua that while he and the men he chooses will be physically fighting the battle, that Moses will be on top of the hill overlooking the battlefield with the staff of God in his hands. With the staff with which he struck the Nile. With this staff with which he struck the rock and water came out. And so now God is about to teach Israel a lesson that they needed to learn and a lesson that each one of us here today need to learn if we haven't and need to be reminded of if we have. Joshua and his men fight as Moses, Aaron, and Hur go to the top of the hill and Moses raises the staff of God above his head. And verse 11 is the key to the lesson that God is teaching the people. Here's what it says. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. So note this. When Moses' hands hold the staff of God up, Israel wins. When Moses grows tired and the staff is lowered, Israel begins to lose. And so Aaron and Hur are going to help Moses. And so they place a stone under him to allow him to sit. And then any time that his arms grow tired, Aaron gets on one side, Hur gets on the other, and they support his arms so that his arms remain raised with the staff of God raised to heaven. And they do this all day until sunset, when finally Joshua and his men overcome the Amalekite army. Now, a couple quick things about this. It has been debated whether what Moses was doing there on top of that hill was praying. So, so we're not told he was praying, but we're told he lifted the staff to heaven. So so there's been some debate: is he praying? And in various places throughout Scripture, raising one's arms is a sign of dependent prayer. Also, Moses says in verse 15 of our text that hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. And I think it's a pretty safe bet to say that there was some praying going on here, that this was uh, Moses interceding in a sense for the men fighting and for the whole nation. There's also been application taken from this story that as long as Moses interceded, Israel prevailed. But when he grew tired and stopped interceding, they would start to lose. So, So that's an application people have taken from this. There's also an application in here where people have noted the importance of coming alongside leaders when they grow weary, supporting and helping spiritual leaders when they uh, become weary. Here's a couple things interceding is good, and I think there is something for us to learn about that here. Supporting leaders is good, and I think there is something about that here. But the point God was making here was not about interceding for weary leaders. And the point God was making was not about the efficacy of praying without ceasing. The point that God was making by causing the fortunes of the army to correlate with the position of Moses' staff, the staff of God, was this point. The only reason that you, Israel, can defeat the Amalekites is because of me, I'm fighting for you, I'm caring for you, I am among you, and because I am, you're going to be victorious. The staff functioned in this case uh, in the case of this battle, just as it had in the case of the plagues, as long as the staff was raised high. Just as in the miraculous plagues and the miracle of the water from the rock, God's decisive role was symbolically acknowledged and the army prevailed. The staff raised above Moses' head symbolized God's superiority to his people and it drove home the point to them that he is the one who has been providing for them all along just as he is in this very moment. They saw this play out. Staff raised. The staff of the Lord raised. They're being victorious. The staff is lowered. They begin to lose. They begin to falter. It proved the futility of relying on anything other than God. It proved the futility, the utter foolishness of turning away from God. It proved once again that God was among them, and it drove home the point that it is never a matter of whether God is among them. It's always a matter of whether or not they recognize the working of God in their midst. And so in response to this victory... In response to this lesson that God had taught the people, Moses built an altar. In verse 15, Moses built an altar and called it Yahweh Nisi. Moses built an altar and called it the Lord is my banner. It's the meaning of Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is is my banner most literally we would uh, probably need to read this uh, Yahweh nisi is Yahweh is my signal pole uh, a signal pole was used in military context it was basically a pole usually with some insignia uh, on it around which an army could rally regroup or return for instructions Douglas Stewart writes this that I think is helpful uh, for us to think about this. Because Yahweh had supplied the sign of his favor, presence, and power by the staff, in effect a small military pole given to Moses, and had done so in the context of a military encounter, Moses stated by the name of the altar that the staff he held high during battle was the signal pole of Yahweh, a visible rallying point for the army of Israel. Moses called the altar Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my signal pole. And that's just as true for us here today as it was for Moses and Joshua and the people of Israel. The Lord is our focal point, our rallying point in times of trouble. No doubt the army started to notice that whenever Moses raised the staff of God above his head, they would succeed. And so here's what I believe happened. Every time they looked over and they saw the staff of God raised to heaven, they were encouraged. Hope for victory was renewed. They were strengthened in their spirit to continue fighting confident that God was fighting for them. God himself is our focal point and our rallying point. When we're faced with difficulty, when we're faced with fearsome enemies, God is our source of strength, the source of our encouragement to keep fighting. It comes from him. We look to the Lord who is our banner, the Lord who is our signal pole. We find encouragement by looking to him and we keep on fighting. The Lord's our signal pole. He is our rallying point. We regroup around the Lord. What we're supposed to do that the Israelites didn't do in their fear over being without water is that we are supposed to run to the Lord in times of difficulty. They pulled away from the Lord. They accused the Lord. And of course, we often do that. We, we allow difficulty to lead us away from God. But what we are meant to do is run to the Lord, our banner. We are meant to run to the place where we regroup. He's our banner. The, the, the place where when things are in disarray, we can run to and regroup. If life is feeling out of control for you, if you're struggling with fear, You feel as though you're flailing in life right now. Don't let the enemy convince you to run away from God. You need to run to God. You need to run to the rallying point. You need to run to the place, the person, where you can regroup. God is our signal pole. He's our banner. He's our rallying point, our focal point, our place to regroup. And it is to the Lord we run to get instructions on what to do next. A signal pole is a place where you run when the battle isn't going well. And you receive instructions there that will equip you to go back out, confront the battle in a different way, and give it another go. We have to run to God to get instructions for the battles in our lives. He instructs us. He encourages us. He renews us. Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is our signal pole. The Lord is our banner. So let's apply this a little bit uh, here today to our own lives. The Israelites faced, uh, were faced with very difficult situations that God had led them into. And they reacted badly. They unfaithfully questioned the goodness of God, questioned whether he was even with them. So a question that comes to us today is how can we maintain faith and faithfulness during difficult times? How can we avoid being unfaithful like they were? How can we avoid making accusations against God? How can we avoid even in great difficulty making demands of God? that we have no right to make. You know, we, have, we, we just have zero right to demand anything of God. And, and yet we think we're entitled to all kinds of things. And, and so how do we live saying, I have no right to make a demand of God? How can we avoid seeing God as our genie in the bottle? And the minute that He doesn't do what, he, what we want Him to do, we turn on Him. I think there are at least, there are probably more, but at least four things we find in the text that will help us be faithful even when things are difficult. Uh, Four things that will enable us not just to be faithful, but to receive help from God. Faithfulness is important, but it's not just about being faithful even though everything is horrible around you. It's also about availing ourselves of the help that is available from God if we will receive it, instead of turning away from it. And so here are four things that I want to submit to us today. First, we must remember what the Lord has already done for us. None of Israel's accusations against God were true. Their questioning of his protection and presence was unwarranted. Their problem was that they refused to remember who God is and what he had done. Uh, We've covered multiple times here all the things that God had done on their behalf and yet they questioned his presence. They failed to remember. So they're faced with a crisis of no water. God had delivered them from the Red Sea. They failed to commit to remember it. God turned bitter water to sweet. They failed to remember it. They had eaten manna miraculously provided by God the very morning that they questioned His presence. They could look at the pillar of cloud that was proof of God's presence. But no matter how obvious God's work in their lives, no matter how recent His work in their lives, they... Did not properly recognize it. They failed to properly remember it. I mean, there are times when people are called to go years without seeing God answer a specific question for them. These people were seeing things answered for them every single day. You talk about short term memory problems, they had them. And so after God gives them victory over the Amalekites, he tells Moses in verse 14, write this in a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure Joshua hears about it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Blot out the memory is simply a way of saying I'm going to utterly destroy them. So God wants what he's done written down so that it will be remembered. Because before Amalek is finally, ultimately destroyed, Israel is going to come up against Amalek again. There's going to be another problem down the road. You're going to see the same enemy again. You're going to see it again because Amalek wasn't completely destroyed until David uh, defeated them, uh, reduced them to irrelevant, and then the Simeonites killed the, the few of them who had escaped David. So there were going to be more battles. There were going to be more opportunities to be tempted to fear and wonder if God would take care of them. And so God wanted Moses to write it down so that they could remember this the next time they faced a problem. Friend, one of the best things that you can do for your faith, one of the best things you can do to remain faithful to God, one of the best things you can do to be encouraged when you are facing difficulty in your life is to remember all the things that God has already done for you. Write them down. Share them with your family. I know you have a big unresolved problem facing you today. I understand that. But remind yourself of what God has already done and your faith will grow that God will take care of you yet again. And let's be honest about something here. With what God has done for each and every one of us in Jesus Christ, in dying for our sins, in making a way available that we sinful people could live in the presence of God forever if He never answers another prayer for any of us, if He never heals our body, if He never helps us financially, He's done more than enough for every single one of us here today. He's done enough that He deserves our praise for all eternity if another prayer is never answered and you ought to say amen to that. Amen. Secondly, we must look to the Lord. He is our signal pole. We, we must look to him. As Israel was fighting the Amalekites, every time they looked and saw the staff of God raised above Moses' head, they were encouraged and emboldened. We must look to the Lord when times are tough. We're, we're tempted... To, to look away from the Lord and just stay focused on our problem. We're, we're tempted to look for an escape plan uh, that doesn't involve God. We're tempted to look to distractions just to take our minds off of the problem. And I think there's an appropriate role for distractions when you're in the midst of some difficulty. But what we really need to do when faced with difficulty is look to the Lord. These are the times that we need his word more than ever. These are the times that we need to pray more than ever. These are the times that we need to remember more than ever. We don't look away from the Lord in times of trouble. We look to the Lord, our signal pole, where we find encouragement. And third, if we're going to remain faithful and receive the encouragement and help that God has for us, we need to gather together around the Lord our banner. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is our signal pole. The Lord is our rallying point. He is our place to regroup. He is our place to receive instruction. The Lord is the place where we, the people of God, come together to rally, to regroup, to receive instruction. We're in this together. We're in the battle together. And when we need to rally, when we need to regroup, when we need to receive instructions, we do so together around the signal pole. We meet at the signal pole. We meet at the banner. We meet together at and with the Lord. We run to God our banner together. We've got to intentionally gather together around the Lord our banner. We gather together here on Sundays Around the Lord. Around the Lord. I I like all of you. I would hang out with you, I, I think, without the Lord. At least, you know, a percentage of you. But we are gathered around the Lord here today. We're gathered around the Lord. We gather in small groups and ministry teams around the Lord. He's at the center uh, of everything we're doing. We gather one family with another around the Lord. One Christian brother with another Christian brother around the Lord. One Christian sister with another Christian sister around the Lord. And I want to encourage you as we approach this fall that you commit to taking advantage of every opportunity you have to gather together with others around the Lord. Make a priority of Sunday worship attendance. I don't care how many people tell me that in 2015 you just have to accept that people will come to church just whenever they please. I I don't buy it. You you are hurting yourself spiritually if you do this. I know we're all going to take vacations. I know we're all going to have work conflicts. I get that. But if you're not vacationing or you're not working or you don't have some really compelling other reason, where should you be on Sunday morning? Here. And if you don't like this one well enough to show up every time you can, go to one that you like well enough to show up every time you can. Because you need to gather together around the Lord. You need to. You need it all the time. You are in a battle constantly. You've got to gather around the Lord. Be part of a small group. And, and friends, I want to encourage you to begin reaching out to other. Many of you do this. Some of you don't. Informally. Everything doesn't have to be a, a formal church function. Get to know other families in the church. Get to know other men, men, and other women, women. If you're discouraged about your social life and feel that you need more friends, don't just wait. Reach out. Initiate. We need each other. But here's the reality. Nothing just happens. Everything takes effort, including the cultivation of friendships, even friendships around the Lord. It all takes effort. So take advantage of every means of gathering around the Lord. This is a key to maintaining faith in difficult times. It's key to being faithful. It is key to receiving the encouragement and strength that the Lord has for you. And finally, which is good because it's really late, we maintain faith and we receive what we need from the Lord as we obey, even when obedience is hard. Moses had to obey God and stand in front of the people even though he was afraid of them. Joshua had to obey and fight the Amalekites even though they were fearsome people. And through God's power, working through their obedience, Israel received water and gained victory over Amalek. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord, is our banner. We remain faithful and receive the help that we need from Him by remembering His work in our life, by looking to Him in times of trouble, by gathering around Him and by obeying him. May each of us do each of these things. Why don't you stand?